Greetings. Greetings to all of you, good people. I am Ian McKenzie here with the School of Mythopoetics. I shall be somewhat of the host of our discussion today. Uh, and I would uh, just wish to acknowledge that there does seem to be already a trickster among us uh, with this particular presentation today in that last minute we had a little jostling with uh, the appropriate link and uh, I've heard Mercury's also in retrograde so I think we can blame it on a variety of factors but uh, hopefully here we go many of you have marshaled here with us for this live stream this uh, conversation that we're going to dive into today and uh, I for one am delighted to be here on this conversation from hero to trickster yeah thanks uh, I have two guests who I'm about to introduce in a moment for this conversation. Uh, but first, I do want to acknowledge that this is a part of our uh, approach, part of our um, uh, build towards the grand opening of the School of Mythopoetics. Uh, those of you who have already followed along, you've uh, maybe tuned into two of our other previous events that we've done. Uh, first conversation on uh, reclaiming rites of passage, reclaiming initiation, as well as uh, incredible storytelling from... Jan Blake, a uh, storyteller uh, based in Europe who graced us with two fantastic stories last week. And now uh, we're about to launch into our third conversation of our five events leading up to June 1st. That's the official opening of the school. Now I do wanna mention, uh, for those of you who are intrigued and inspired to join before the June 1st date, you can lock yourself in as a founding member, which is a special rate that we're offering to those of you willing to, to take the leap and jump into this journey with us uh, before we officially launch. And so uh, if that's of interest to you, you can check it out at schoolmythopoetics.com. And uh, yeah, away we go. So allow me first to introduce uh, the two guests here today. First, I'm going to bring them on. Delighted to be joined by John Wollstone here. Welcome, John. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to mm. um, be here. Um, and uh, wait, let me, I got a few words to spill before we truly leap in. And okay. uh, uh, John has been a collaborator for many years. He's also one of the co-founding stewards here at the School of Mythopoetics. You may remember him as well from the Reclaim Initiation talk we did a few weeks ago, as mentioned. Uh, but he is a rites of passage guide, a facilitator, storyteller, uh, filmmaker, collaborator with me as well. And uh, we've woven in, in many ways uh, over the last few years. So delighted to have you here as well as welcoming on Benjamin Murphy, mm -hmm. uh, who as well has been uh, a frequent uh, collaborator uh, within the former school, which was uh, the Mythic Masculine Network, and currently has stewarded a lot of the story, uh, the story of myth tellings within the network. He himself is a storyteller, writer, and mythosomatic guide. So I'm delighted here to welcome the two of you to this conversation today. Uh, thank you, Ian. You know, I'm actually just tuning in to one of the uh, comments here, which I just really want to share um, from Rave um, Emic, which is that um, they felt that as we were trying to connect uh, online amidst the trickery that was uh, happening, they felt us all in the psychic realm, sitting in a circle by Stonehenge, trying to um, assure ourselves that we are not crazy. <laughs> and I just... <laughs> <laughs> love that image thank you for uh sharing that i think that's i think that in many ways you know actually gives us some of the frequency of you know what this talk is um about um with that i want to start by 
first um, acknowledging that I am a settler on the stolen, unceded, ancestral um, homelands of the Cowichan and uh, Wistanic First Nations people up here in what is now known as Salt Spring Island, British Columbia. Um, and I say that with um, humility and a deep prayer that what we are doing here um, is really uh, is really um, in service to the healing and reparation of what that truly means. Um, I welcome people to also, you know, in the comments to share whose land you were on, if you would know, and also want to pass over to Ben to do the same. Indeed. Yeah. Thanks, John. Yeah, I'm living in what is known here as Portland, Oregon, Northern Oregon, um, the Pacific Northwest of the United States. And uh, these lands belong to the Kalapuya, the Multnomah, and Clackamas peoples, among many others. And those people spoke Chinook languages. Um, often that's the uh, acknowledgement that I will give that these are Chinookan lands. Um, thank you. Yeah, and if I might add as well, I'm here on the territory of the Comox Nation uh, up mm. in the Comox Valley in Vancouver Island, as it's known as well. And uh, yeah, grateful to be here and to help uh, steward this conversation around, mm. uh, yeah, a, a tricksterish conversation itself. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, with a little bit more ado, uh, I'll just perhaps tee up what I understand this conversation will be and then likely vacate the stage for a bit to allow you to, to leap in. Mm. Uh, and also just a note to our live audience that again, you're welcome to be offering yeah, your comments, um, you know, what stirs for you, uh, questions you might have, and we'll find a way to try to weave them into the flow of the conversation as we go. Uh, and so this conversation from here to trickster, you know, what I understand as well is that it, this is really a, it is a wondering rather than a, you know, a clear transmission that, you know, the two of you have, you mm -hmm. know, thought deeply on this and, and moved through many places and communities and, and wonderings and that this is really meant to be that uh, shared wondering together rather than a, you know, deliverance from on high. And so uh, I'm personally curious as well, where, where are we going to go? And I may come in and offer mm -hmm. you know, some prov provocations at different points, but uh, otherwise I'm happy to turn it over to all of you. Mm. Great. Yeah, thank you, Ian. Yeah, you know, I think that um, any of us, if we ever claim or feel that we are on high with Trickster, um, are soon to find our face in the mud. Um, you know, and talking just right before we were uh, going live, me and Ben were talking about that Trickster um, especially is not someone so much to try to embody as just make space for. So with that, you know, such an important part of the school is making space for all the otherworldly forces, you know, that really are what give us life. So I just want to take a moment here and I have a candle. Um, I want to light this candle and say a little dedication and um, prayer. Mm. Yeah, I just want to call upon, um, you know, all of our ancestors here, all of our uh benevolent, healthy, and wise, well, um, ancestors, um, you know, as well as all the helping forces of the greater um, spiritual and earthly um, um, 
um, ecologies that uh, surround us and just create some space for them here and really dedicate this in service to ups, having our ears open and our eyes wide um, and our hearts, you know, flowering as we're navigating this really tremendous time of um, initiation that we are in as a species. So with that, yeah, I want to get um, underway and um, share that we're here to talk about the shift from the hero to the trickster. And Ian was talking earlier to me and he was like, you know, you're kind of taking on a, um, you know, a, like sacred cow. And what he meant was in some ways we're taking on the wondering of, in some ways, the way I like to um, say it, that this uh, reign of the hero is um, over. Um, and so to um, explore that a bit, I just want to share, you know, it's not news to any of us that we live in a epoch dominated by the mythology of the hero. You know, as Joseph Campbell, you know, has eloquently wrote and made famous that this is like this monomyth that he claimed to find in every culture. Although I would question a bit, you know, of that um, conclusion, but I'd say it certainly is a monomyth found in like what we understand as like Western culture. Um, and the thing is, I think actually to really tug in that thread, if it's found in every culture and really where did that hero mythology come from? I want to share just a quick story. Um, so I've had the privilege to um, study and participate in um, ritual with a, um, a um, indigenous Quechua a medicine man named Arkan Lushwala. And he once shared this story that when the colonizers, when the conquistadors, the Spanish, came to his native Peru, and they came to missionize, to conquest, uh, and to really, you know, convert the local indigenous folks to Christianity, they ran into a problem. Because it was really fundamental because in their worldview, which is very much the worldview of the hero, there is a clear good and evil. There is clear God on high and there is the devil. But in the indigenous Quechua language, there was no word for, for devil. There was no concept for this idea really of devil or really evil in the same way that we've so come to take for granted. And so these Catholic missionaries had a search and they're searching, trying to figure out like what other word in the Quechua language can we use? You know, that's going to help them understand what we mean by devil. And the closest word they could find to mean devil was this word supai. And this word supai actually meant in Quechua to be outstanding. And the reason they chose that, because when they heard any time Quechua people speaking this, they were saying it with like some fear and some like kind of a bit of like, oh, we do like, it's not good to be supai, not good to be outstanding. That's because in their culture, in their indigenous cosmology of an intact village culture, to be outstanding from the rest of the community, the rest of the village was actually a very dangerous thing. 
in some ways to step forward to try to be a hero, they understood was going to be the death of their culture. So that is the word, actually, that the Catholic missionaries chose to associate with the uh, devil. So we can already see there that it's not just absolute. It's not universal. That hero is this thing to um, aspire towards. Although all of the movies, you know, more or less that we've ever seen, you know, is promoting this um, heroic um, ideal. That that is like the highest purpose that we can achieve in a human life. But if we look back and wonder, well, if it's not, you know, absolute, if actually maybe in many indigenous cosmologies and ancestral uh, knowings um, around the world, that being a hero wasn't always a good thing. How did this hero mythology come to pass? Because I think we need to understand that if we're going to try to understand where we are right now, when it's clear that feats of heroism are breaking down, I think it's helpful to understand where did this hero mythology come from. Also want to say, Ian and Ben, you're welcome to chime in at any like point. You're kind of building a bit of a building a bit of a framework for us here. Yeah, but yeah. I'm please. liking where you're going and I have some thoughts, but I want you to keep going for now. Okay. Well so and this really goes back, I want to give um acknowledgement to a teacher of mine and Ian's, Stephen Jenkinson, where in his orphan um, wisdom school, we spent a whole like session studying the epic of gilgamesh the reason why is because the epic of gilgamesh which i'm sure many of you have heard of it's the oldest written story that humans have thus far found written on like tablets from ancient um sumeria like about five thousand um years ago and some now being found even further back and so this is the first account of humans writing, which is already a certain shift, you know, towards a certain era of civilization, which we can say maybe is around when this hero mythology came to pass. And this story of Gilgamesh is very illuminating to where heroism came from, because in this story, there is a great king, Gilgamesh. And, you know, he's a king and he's already, you know, controlling all of these like lands but it's not quite enough because there's something churning in gilgamesh which is the realization of his own mortality the realization of his death and so in the in the story in the saga gilgamesh to kind of you know scratch this itch of the anxiety around his own mortality he sets off and he goes on a on a quest, he actually goes on many. But one of the key ones is that he goes to the sacred cedar grove because he wants to cut down the sacred cedar trees to build a monument to himself and make a name for himself, it is said, which is something that's actually referenced many times in the Bible. And in order to cut down these sacred cedar trees, he has to fight and eventually kill the guardian this like giant um like transhuman animal guardian of the forest which he does successfully kill so that he can cut down these sacred cedar trees this deep violation of of life so he can build a monument and create a name for himself 
because he because he knows that the only way he can have this everlasting life and really cheat death is to create a name for himself to become a hero to create some kind of fame so that he can attempt to live on and in that we see that there's something very deep here because i think it's kind of you know at a base level um assumed that being a hero is some altruistic thing right that's what we're taught people are heroes but at some core level if we're looking at some of the like cultural mythological dna there's something else going on like maybe heroism at its inception wasn't actually about some altruistic sense of serving the greater good but maybe there is a place where something broke with humanity and i often see this that you could say that actually the rise of hero mythology is very coinciding with the fall of goddess worship the goddess being the one that is connecting the cycle of life and death and this understanding that death feeds life is totally necessary and not something ultimately to really fear at least on a deeper cultural level you know and with cultures that still have um initiation rights and a certain um intactness where people can develop to that level of understanding that and so something happened where there was a certain kind of break which we could spend you know many hours and many of us have and will continue what exactly happened but something ruptured where death became something to fear and the way to deal with that fear was to try to live on forever um which is not the quality i understand of trickster um there's 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 definitely more I want to share, but I'll pass over to Ben just to respond and jam on that. Yeah, just one one thing to just kind of like reiterate somewhat the point that you're making, um, and this is also like come a little bit through working um, with Stephen Jenkinson in the school we had him on um, in January as we were studying Beowulf, which is our English in the English speaking world what he calls our mother book. That's our first um, written document, the oldest written. Um, in what, you know, became the English language that we know today. And those same same themes are just so woven throughout this uh, attainment of glory uh, and the living on beyond death through the stories that one, one uh, are told about one. And something about the confrontation with, with uh, monstrous creatures and having traversed the encounter with death um, and, and, you know, seeking them out essentially like Beowulf comes from a whole other land and you know it's at the behest of a, a king in a particular place in Denmark um, and he he goes out of his way basically to to do these things to, to confront death and to descend and fa he faces Grendel's mother as well which is you know you can look at uh, some correlation in this idea of the mother goddess in Grendel's mother um, looking at some of these goddess mythologies that you're referring to they tend to have a there is sort of a hero figure in there but he's the consort of the goddess and a big uh motif in many of them is that he dies and then is resurrected so it seems to directly you know contradict this image of the hero who's escaping death um, and I think it's even in the Gilgamesh myth, if I'm remembering right, he descends to the underworld and 
I think he discovers, like, he fails a test, and I believe it's to not fall asleep for a really extended period of time, uh, which is, you know, this is another image of death. Um, he fails to not fall asleep, and, and so he's sent away, but he is given a consolation in a plant that he might eat that will restore his youth. And the, uh, a snake comes and eats it. And, that's, this is, and the snake is then allowed to shed its skin, and, and it becomes this image of a ever-renewing life that Gilgamesh is denied. So there's those pieces. Um, I don't know if we want to move quite to trickster yet. Do you have more? No, you wanna, but yeah. yeah, yeah, I have, but I um, appreciate this, Ben. You know, I was just, yeah, reading actually that part of Gilgamesh um, this morning. And I think what I see you actually weaving towards, which is again, the realm of the hero that we're trying in many ways, I think to ultimately transcend or integrate beyond is this idea of good and bad, of right and wrong. So I also want to say here, I'm not painting the picture that, the hero is bad or the hero is wrong. And what I actually hear you saying, which I understand is that the hero is a necessary stage of psychological development. Our culture just got caught there. And actually this is from reading of Carl Jung. I was actually reading um, this morning in his amazing book, the last book that he read or wrote along with some of his main um, students called Man and His Symbols. Um, that in some ways, the hero is the last stage, is the initiatory stage of like the final crux of adolescent psychic development. And it is this necessity to go out on a quest and to be brave and face death. But in the stories that we have, the part that we forgot is that the hero also needs to die. And what happened this rupture like how, well how did this happen because actually what happens is in that the hero dies and this understanding of death becomes integrated and you'd say a um initiated adult and an initiated culture then integrates that death principle but in all of the stories more or less that we have you know again i'm not saying um ubiquitously but the hero is the one that lives against great odds always like cheating death and looking at historically what happened in these intact cultures that had this further initiatory process where they were able to enter realms or even dance with a bit, perhaps energies of trickster, um, they had a still intact, I guess, relationship with their ancestors. And what this meant, and this for me, ancestry, I could say is at the core of all of this. And it's definitely the core of my of my life. And it's one of the main things I'd say that we're going to be really um, exploring in this school. Because when you have your ancestors, right? When death isn't like, oh, I lost that. My like dad died and I lost him. Like, well, why did you lose him? Like he died, but is he lost or is he just an ancestor now? Hopefully, you know, if the right rights and grief were had because when you have ancestors and your cosmological understanding is that when you die you become an ancestor and you still have your place in the village and people still feed you and talk to you and relate to you and call upon you and you still have a job that you still have a job to like do 
death is not something that is feared, at least not in the same way. But when this broke, and this is the key point, what started to happen in the era of Gilgamesh, in this era of civilization rising, was this village ancestrally connected life was broke. And as that ancestral relationship was lost, death all of a sudden didn't mean, oh, I'm an ancestor. Death meant annihilation. Death became, yeah, who's not scared of that? You know, um, annihilation, like nothingness is super um, scary to the psyche. And the reason that we did um, initiation rites to integrate death. Um, So when we lose these ancestors, death becomes something to be feared. And then heroism becomes something not just to, uh, you know, move through as a stage of adolescent development. It becomes something to grip onto and build a whole culture um, around as a way to feel like you can live on for forever because death is such an incredible thing to now culturally be feared. And you look at the culture that we have and the culture of hero worship, which is so much, I mean, the last thing I'll say, tied up in this idea of salvation. Um, and we can get a bit into the martyr, which is the shadow side of the hero and as exemplified by Jesus. But the other thing that happened is that when death became so scary, we needed this idea of salvation and this idea of an afterlife to go to um, so that we could handle the reality that, yeah, death happens and we will die. And then as we embed that in the hero mythology, you look at the um the um united states so much of our like neo-colonial conquests is in this realm of heroism where we're trying to be saviors to the poor usually brown people somewhere else in the world of course us just offloading our own you know cultural um anxiety and colonizing you know all the things that i think most of us listening here probably know actually happens uh, behind the scenes as consequence of those heroic salvation missions um and so here we are as a culture in this moment when the heroism for the last thousands of years has run its course and because we've been fearing that death and trying to be heroically saving it saving the the world we're actually just offloading the death that we can't integrate and the world around us is actually dying and so the question then is wait but what about trickster? Because looking back in time at all the old stories, all of those old wise cultures, there wasn't just the archetype of hero. There was something else that precisely in these moments of great trouble would often arrive. So with that, I'll pass it over to Ben. Yeah, yeah, I'm tracking back a couple of uh, steps to what you're talking about, about uh, the rise of, I mean, essentially city-states um, is what kind of what I hear you saying, like with the, the rise of the Sumerian cultures, like where they're sort of like uh, noted, I, I learned about them as the beginnings of civilization. Um, so you think about like the walls going up and the streets getting paved and all the buildings getting arranged in whatever way that they, they get arranged. And it's this like crowding out of variability, essentially, this uh, mm. control, control of, uh, a, a, a chaos essentially and this to me it seems to me that this dichotomy between right and wrong or good and evil stems from uh, a a relationship to the light 
which is where you can see. It's where things are easier to track. You feel safer versus the dark, where you don't know what's going on. There's things that could kill you. Yeah, and this is specifically like out of the city. Um, so the, the city becomes an image of light, an image of safety, an image of good versus the outside, which is chaos, which is darkness, which is evil. You know, that's where that, that, that like, ex it like extends that direction. I don't believe it probably started as evil. Um, but we talk about that like chaos order di dichotomy and uh, I've heard a number of different people um, riff on that as sort of like a, a primal archetypal dichotomy that we're dealing with that the hero is in service of, is in service of order. Um, that dichotomy doesn't need to exist if there's actual right relationship between the living systems of, of the world around you. And, and yeah, there, there's some interesting roads we could go down talking about that. Um, the line I want to follow, though, is in, you know, in, in our Judeo-Christian, I'm going to say mostly just Christian, um, uh, heroic kind of thing, savior mentality, uh, we've got this pull, this dichotomy of the light and the dark between God and the devil. And what is the devil? The devil is a deceiver. The devil, that the devil is, uh, is, is lust, is greed, is, is all these like base elements. And it's, it's, you know, defined as evil, the embodiment of evil. And that's to me, what, where we put the trickster. That's what we think of as the trickster, um, you know, as a, as a cultural motif, you know, maybe we don't, think about maybe we're not actually Christians, maybe we're not um, actually espousing those beliefs at this point, but the way that those uh, values have like sifted into our, uh, or infused our culture ends up landing with something, something along those lines. So we don't have a place for trickster. We put him in, exiled out of the, out of the, the circle of what is valued or valid even. Um, uh, so, so what does it mean to make a place for trickster is my question is like you, you've mentioned at the beginning, like, I don't believe personally that anyone should aspire to be a trickster, but I do believe we need a place for him. Right. Right. And I think, you know, Ben, the point that you're bringing up, which I so love is that part of what we're facing now, like the issue we have is that in this light in dark order and chaos dichotomy what happens is the ossification of a certain orthodoxy like we all know the overarching systems i mean not we all know but i'm assuming most of us on the call share some common agreement that many of the overarching institutions and greater systems whether that be thought systems or financial systems or whatever governmental systems are ossified in their orthodoxy and therefore they're no longer just in tune there's not a um attunement and culturally we're asking so then what is the trickster it's not just like the devil and exile like what has been the role of the trickster in cultures for a long time and the role of the trickster as far as i've understood is to come in very necessarily and this happens also i want to say as many mirrors in the natural world as well you can like so much for me of the base archetypes and mythologies all root in to things you can find in the natural world, but that the trickster comes in to break up this ossification, which happens. It happened also to um, indigenous people as well. This had this place and this cycle, this recurring cycle of the trickster being allowed in 
and natural, whether that be the youth or that be in a ritual context to come in and surprise us and do things that are, you know, chaotic at some level because the order needs to be breaking up because that's part of the like healing, growth, transformation, evolutionary cycle is like grow, like the universe finds a like good idea, you know, and it does it. And then it like reaches a point when it no longer serves. So boom, something happens and it gets, but that's the trickster energy coming in. But if we're outcasting that, then things just get stuck further and further and further. And we have the world that we have. And I'm wondering if you want to share more about what 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 the trickster really means in the way that you understand it. Like if you could start to like suss out some of uh, some like defining qualities of it, even though it's hard with a trickster, I know, and dangerous perhaps. Yeah, definitely not like one meaning, definitely not able to like land on one thing. Because I even I mean, I even said a second ago, like you shouldn't aspire to be a trickster, but there's things that a trickster has that are good things to embody. Um, so and there's a couple different roads I could go down, but I'm going to think about Hermes for a second because he, you know, it's like the, the Greek culture, you know, is definitely along that spectrum of civilizational, you know, uh, development that uh, we're kind of picking up from the Sumerian, you know, thread there. Um, but he, so he is the last born, first of all, is a thing to note of, of the initial set of Olympian gods. And he's, he's born of, which is true of some of them, but there, there's a, a, a specificity that the hymn uh, to Hermes has about Maya kind of being on the outside, his mother, Maya. Name of the month that we're in, it's where we get the name of the month we're in, May, and we're about to enter Gemini. So there's like a, a way that this mythology is reflective of, of the uh, astrological wheel, in addition to other like societal things that were going on at the time. But Hermes comes into opposition in his the hymn to Hermes and where he's born with Apollo, where initially he steals these cattle and he, he does a, a trick where he gets them to walk backwards away from, from where they're being kept. And I think it's about 50 head or something. It's not all of them. Um, walks them away into a cave. And this is all uh, born out of his appetite. He's hungry upon waking up. Um, takes them into the cave and he slaughters a couple of them, puts up their skins as a token and a trophy of his youthful theft. And then he portions out 12 portions uh, to be sacrificed to the undying gods. And he has just been born. He is not of the Olympians yet. So, but he's including himself as the 12th into that, into that culture. So like, there, there is a, a way that he is redrawing lines. So he is deciding, I am going to be one of the Olympians and I am going to be a part of the order. And if I am not going to be given it, uh, I will steal it. I will become the Prince of Thieves. And he becomes therefore this, uh, and in, in, in opposition directly to Apollo, who's known for his, I mean, essentially rigidity. Like he is about clearly defined boundaries. And the Olympian order is that as well. Like the, from the Titan era, uh, the the previous set of like rulers of the of the world, basically, uh, there's a definitive way that they're not definitive. They are they are not not well defined. But then you get Zeus, the the Lord of the Skies, and Poseidon, the Lord of the Seas, and Hades in the underworld, and uh, Hestia, keeper of the hearth, and so they all have their little role, um, and if without without something that's kind of 
greasing those hinges, there, there, that ossification that you're talking about comes. And, and like, I think it's important here to note that like trickster isn't necessarily even just human, like you're naming, it's part of, part of uh, just the natural world. So that ossification that happens, uh, it, it's gonna break eventually. Something, something will break once the pressure builds enough. And without something greasing those hinges, without creating a more fluid articulation between parts, uh, they're, they're then uh, that, that breaking becomes more cataclysmic, becomes more damaging um, to everything. Right, which is, which is why healthy, intact indigenous cultures had that place set aside and even cyclical, repetitive, ritual enactments of trickster energy is to like give that can the same way that if you plant in a garden you know not always but it's like you sometimes need to break up the like soil or i'd say in like my um ancestral jewish heritage like one way we kind of deal with this is creating space like on shabbat one day a week or this year is a shemitah year it's like one year out of seven where we just let things be in the chaos of nature and in some ways, what I'm seeing, like the image that's coming to me, Ben, is like kind of what happened mythologically is that there's this pantheon of gods or archetypes and the hero is like one of them. <laughs> but the hero kind of like got in front and out of its own anxiety started dominating all the rest and taking up all the space. And so the death of the hero, again, is not the exile of the hero because there are moments for heroic courage or bravery, those qualities but it's creating a good space for all of the archetypes. But the one that can only one in some ways that can stand up to the hero is the trickster. And I love what Caroline Casey says. She calls the trickster the trickster redeemer. And she says that the trickster in some ways, and in, in some ways I think with all these things, like I think trickster has its own talos, its own purpose. In some ways, it just wants to be fed like everything else, like every other spirit in God. And I think what it really likes to feed on in some ways is that the chaos of play, of surprise, of foolery. There is like a foolishness that in some ways I feel like is what the trickster, you could say, is like moving towards or even feeding on. And we can feed it with 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 like that. And that's what the trickster loves when he sees somebody getting on on high. It loves to come in. They love to come in and break that down. And in that way, is they are a liberator. But I'm not even sure that like liberation or it's like, again, it's not this heroic, altruistic, I'm coming in to knock the hero to like restore the aura. It's just coming in to play. And something that I love that that um, Caroline Casey also um, said um, you know, she was talking about this idea of play and this element of surprise. And she often talks about how there's no prison for the, um, for the, um, unexpected. There's no prison for the unexpected that as opposed to kind of a more almost heroic idea that we have of wolf culture and wolf social dynamics, that there's this alpha wolf, which has been really proven not to be the way that we were like told it that though the a wolf that leads which sometimes changes is the one that can incite play the best the one that can invite play in the best is the one and you think about that with humans too you want to be around somebody that can invite in that sense of play and the thing about play 
similar to like jokes is that there is sometimes lightly or even greatly this element of boundary crossing, but it's in service to that play, to that creative, like almost erotic drive of the, of the um, universe. It's this liberatory quality again and again and again. Um, Oh, there's more I, I want to say, but I want to pass it back. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny, just sort of back to this thing about Hermes redrawing the lines. Like, so this this idea of the wolf and the alpha wolf and all this, you know, we're, we're, we're creating a particular circle around which we're talking about this organizational pattern. And that's, you know, this is the wolf that leads even. But uh, as in, you know, in inquiring into Trickster, inquiring into Raven in particular, um, I was learning that wolves follow ravens. Wolves will follow a raven um, to help them hunt, to know where where to go. I'm not sure the the particular dynamics of this, but like who's leading in that in that instance? That's an interspecies relationship that's happening there. That is like taken out that, that sort of uh, completely unseats even that idea that there is like this really uh, confined hierarchy that just exists within this wolf pack. You know, there's an inter interpenetration between uh, spheres of influence, essentially. Um, so that's one thing. Another thing uh, bouncing off of uh, what you were saying is like trickster is so connected to appetite. Just, you know, that, that alone, like the, the idea that, you know, we all need to be fed. And I, I'm just thinking a super simple example is just like, have you ever gotten in a fight when you're hungry. And if you just ate something, how does that shift the entire dynamic? How are you liberated in that moment to actually be with what's going on in this dynamic between two people? Um, it's just like appetite is trickster in that instance. Um, appetite is the thing that's disrupting, um, you know, maybe not entirely, but it's definitely throwing a wrench in the whole, whole picture. Right. And I feel like that that's so key because I feel like at some level there's this very grounding quality to that trickster energy because it's it's in some ways an energy that's coming to point out what is obvious but become overlooked. Is the other quality I find of heroism? You know, we think of this Gilgamesh story. It's often this visionary quality, and I I consider myself a visionary. Like I have that gift. But that is a very dangerous gift because it keeps you ungrounded, unhumbled, unconnected to the present moment. And if you look at the um, United States, so much of its conquest and colonization and the genocide that happened to the um, indigenous peoples was because of this doctrine of manifest destiny, this vision of like working the land from coast to like coast. And in that vision, we became completely unattuned to the medicine and the gifts and the partnership and the this life that was being lived here that had we integrated, that had like people that looked like us that came over integrated, it'd be a very different world. So in some ways it's like, how do we create space and integrate this willingness to be kind of pointed out what is right at our, at our like feet and have that, um have that laugh, you, you know, um, of, of, about, how ignorant that we that we were and in, and in many ways there's something very initiatory about the trickster and what i mean by that is that the energetic of the trickster is often this like 
there can be a sense of like some kind of like a antagonizing force. Um, and just on a pure energetic level, I was sharing this um, earlier. Um, I've participated and been to a few Lakota Sundances. And they have a ritual trickster figure called the um, Hayoka. It's like a clown. And what happens in the Sundance, which is a super sacred, very orthodox, like by the book ritual, you know, to a T, how everything has to happen. And everybody's dancing sunwise around this great tree. The trickster, Hayoka, comes in and dances amongst doing many other hilarious things, dances energetically counterclockwise. And they recognize that is necessary too. That like counterclockwise um, energy, in some ways, you could say, in the initiatory journey of human beings and the greater initiatory journey we're in as a as a species, this counterclockwise energy comes in when we're plunged into the um, underworld, and all of a sudden we're in the dark. It's this place of uncertainty, and we have to go and integrate something there to come up again. Hopefully, um, eventually, because right now it's pretty easy to get lost in that underworld. A place but those who do come back up hopefully come back up with some of that trickster redemptive power of liberation of just how to hold space for that uncertainty which life brings how to hold space for that counterclockwise energy you can have the best plans in the world and we all do but those that are really initiated and in the culture that i think we're needing to build is one that can hold space for this kind of energy to completely up and move backwards everything we're trying to move forwards and learn to not just want to destroy that when it comes, mm -hmm. but to laugh with that or be with that or praise that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, just a couple of pieces bouncing around in my head. I'll just kind of follow one of them um, somewhat arbitrarily, <laughs> um, but just thinking about this uh, thing about uh, the initiatory, energy of trickster i mean one one thing to name about that is that we you know we live in a culture of largely you know and i, I it's like so a funny thing to say because it's not like i can say i'm initiated um but we we live in a culture that's that let's say we're not initiated into what are we initiating into and the, i mean think a big theme that uh i mean we hold in the school of mythopoetics that you hold um, that I hold is that part of what's being initiated, we're wanting to be initiated into is an allyship with, with soul, with the natural world, with a deeper relationality um, into the systems that we exist within and that are largely unconscious of. So if, if we're looking to be initiated, that's kind of what I'm thinking of when, when I'm thinking uh, that we're going that direction. That's counter to what we were talking about, about this highly structured, rigid, keeping death at bay, keeping all, um, all upheaval that re results in, in reorganizations of systems at bay. Um, I'm thinking about um, the you know, very famous at this point uh, story uh, popularized by Robert Bly, Iron John. And there's this, you know, there's, he talks so much in that book about how this is an initi initiation into manhood that this boy is going through. And reading through it more recently, um, I just can't help but feel that there's just like a slightly different thing going on. Because that's like manhood, what is such an abstract, even in the midst of what's being spoken of there. But so the boy, so first, the the wild man is found by a sort of, uh, he's called the brave. 
and he's, he's kind of a heroic figure. He's the one that's like, I'm going to go out to the forest and solve this problem for you. So this, uh, people keep, hunters keep going out into the forest and getting pulled down into this pond and they don't know what's happening. So the king has stopped sending anybody out there and the, the brave volunteers to go do this. Very heroic. Uh, he gets there and his dog gets pulled in and before doing anything else, he, he goes and he just buckets out the pond and there at the bottom is the wild man. They take the wild man back to the castle, to the walls, to the concrete, to the stability, the thing that's keeping the forest at bay. And they put him in a cage. Few things happen from there, but a little boy that lives in the uh, castle loses his ball. So it's like his innocent plaything into the cage and his and then the wild man tells him, I'll give it back to you if you steal the key from under your mother's pillow. Um, so he has to commit this transgression uh, from the authority figures, not only of his family, but of you know this kingdom. He does it. So the Iron Man is incited, I mean, sorry, <laughs> Iron John, not Iron Man. Um, I think about Marvel a lot and yeah, we'll maybe get into that at some point. <laughs> Uh, so the Iron John has already initiated the boy out of his subservience to the hierarchy that he's, you know, accustomed yeah. to. Um, and from there, he's like, oh, no, my parents will beat me if they find out about this. And the Iron, Iron John is just, ah, we can't have that, puts him on his shoulders, takes him out into the forest. From there, he's, the boy is given this task to watch this sacred spring. Hmm. And... Iron John, the wild man, very specifically says, now don't touch the spring. You're not to touch the spring. And it's like ubiquitous trope in so many fairy tales. If something's forbidden, it is going to happen. And it's that that's just, to me, that, that struck me as like, that's a trickster moment. Like he is initiating this boy into another level of something. So the boy then over the course of three days fails again and again to not touch the spring. First, it's a wound that he dips in the spring. Next, it's a hair that falls in. And then finally, he's like transfixed by his image in the in the reflection in the spring and his hair all falls in and he's baptized and he comes up and all his hair is gold. And he has to venture from there back out into the civilized world, hiding this thing that he's had occur and, and basically integrating it, having to come back again and again to the forest. And I've just, uh, sitting with it is just like this is an initiation into an ecological awareness and into a a relationship mm -hmm. with the sacredness of of nature um through trickery through being told don't do this but actually that's what kind of wants to happen um yeah yes uh i love that thank you for sharing that 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 story um i love coming back because in some ways iron john is you know against we're coming from this source being the mythic masculine network and that is something of a proto story for a male um, initiatory journey um and what i love in those moments is that it's like people are holding space i think to almost become possessed by or like enveloped by the trickster archetype for a moment to have that particular genius comes come like through and that's so much what we're talking about because I think the danger in even Iron John and even in the past uh, generation is they thought of um, initiation. And I think it's a danger I really want to claim here in the schools that we're not, we cannot approach initiation 
it's like you can't approach initiation from the uninitiated place of hierarchy that it's somewhere to get to and it means that you're better than and now become a man or become a woman or become what you know it's like it's and so the the interesting thing in breaking that and actually i heard sophie um um sophie um sophie strand give yeah, yeah give an amazing talk with ian about this mm-hmm. um that that part of that breaking that orthodoxy is that to hold space for the trickster is to in some ways it's really just that it's a holding of a space and then you're kind of looking for when for when the when the like necessity and you will know from your from your inner call is there to actualize a trickster moment and actually another great moment i really love that stephen jenkinson talks about he talks about these two um betrayals and it's this moment when you know a very quintessential childhood moment you know the dad has like the like little boy or the little girl on 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 the bike and the kid's learning to like ride and the kid's not going to do it unless the dad is like i promise i will not let go i will not let go and then they're going along you know, and the kids uh, pedaling and getting some balance. And in that moment, the dad, by necessity of life, has to have a betrayal where he does the thing he said he wasn't going to do and he lets go. But if he doesn't do that, that's the second betrayal because he robs the kid of that chance to actually figure figure it out for himself and maybe fall on his face. And the kid gets up, maybe cries, you hug him, then he laughs and he does it again. And that it's that energy of that getting up and doing it again, but that willingness. But as a parent, there are many times you need to be a boundary holder and probably a transgressor. I mean, God, as a parent, you're constantly transgressing your kids' boundaries because they are dependent and learning that from you, right? So it's not, this isn't like some crazy, far off, mystical thing either they are talking about. I'm not also saying, again, it's like we can get in this dangerous realm. Like, was that a trickster moment? Again, it's like we need to be a bit more playful, I think with these definitions but i think the point is it's it's really creating a space for the uncertainty it's a willing to you're not there to conquer the uncertainty by being a trickster who then can master bringing um uncertainty you're just being open to channel part of being the trickster in a moment to moment thing is that you're a fool that might lead by falling on your face it's actually often what it's about so it's like it really is not a thing like um initiation that you can go after but again and that's where i think things like hayoka or the hopi clown or so or like loki came from cultures seeing this pattern and then being willing to create a space and a role for it and ritually enact it or mythologize with it but it's not to like be it or conquer it it's just a space holding with it Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah this is coming back to the thread around like light and dark, right and wrong, wild and civilized, and and just this idea of uh, trickster as a, not just a boundary crosser, but a dweller on the threshold, um, and living living in between this and that category. And uh, Lewis Hyde in Trickster Makes This World, uh, very early on, is talking about how Coyote and Raven um, are both, you know, quintessential tricksters for much of yeah, what we call the United States, what um, used to be, you know, those, the indigenous peoples of these lands. 
Um, and they're bait thieves. So like a trap gets set. And so this, this being is neither preying on another animal, though coyotes do. Um, it's not preying on another animal in this case. It is, it is preying on the, on the thing that someone hunting, someone else hunting, someone else being the predator has set for another being. And it just, it removes itself from that entire dichotomy of hunted versus hunter and, and becomes like this other third thing. Um, and then same thing with Raven. And then there's another like way it's like a, it's, it's sort of in between an herbivore and a carnivore in that it's, it's grazing. It's not hunting something, but it is eating meat. Um, this is, this is taking me down a road, just thinking about, um, hunter and hunted, you know, that, that dichotomy, um, and death, as you were mentioning, before, you know, one, one of these, you know, uh, pieces that I connect to the warrior much of the time is the, the, I mean, the hero much of the time is the warrior. Um, and so there's this like relationality with death that, that at one point was hunting and progressed into being warrior and taking the lives of other human beings much of the time. Um, but in the role with hunter, you're not turning the enemy into an other, you're not turning it into something to be conquered with the hunter, you are actually incorporating that thing into your being. And you're riding this line between being a killer and being somebody who's also nourishing other beings. Like if you hunt, you bring that back to the village to, to feed them. So there, there's the, the edge of the trickster as a is continuous with the hunter becomes really uh, a rich territory to kind of be engaging with again, how does this how does this actually like integrate into our our lives? Yes, I, I love that. You know, and something that I mean, what I hear you saying. Sorry, is one, one. Sorry, I want to just like tack on one thought that I feel like didn't it. quite get in there, and that's a that's just like a really uh, key relationship with death because it's like the hunter is also like in danger when they're being when they're being a hunter. They're also out in the wild dealing with other wild things. So there's the 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 thing that we were talking about at the beginning about the hero being averse and avoidant and keeping death at bay the hunter is willingly stepping into a relationship with and i think it's that quality of acknowledgement like the trickster wants to acknowledge what is unacknowledged or maybe it's think you want to it's just what it naturally is drawn towards there's a drawn towards doing that and i think the way that Although it might not appear way, something that I love that Caroline Casey also said is that in this time of learning to dance with the trickster, there really is this way of like transcending towards playing a type of beauty poker. And what mm -hmm. she means by that is getting like, again, it is, it is this like feeding. Actually, a, a practice that I carry when I go and hunt is planting, throwing out wildflower seeds in my footsteps. So that I'm giving food, hopefully, for the elk that I'm hunting, continue. And for me, it's just about like creating beauty as I'm trampling the, the earth. And it's that acknowledgement, okay, I'm here taking, even by my presence, I'm killing and taking, much if I even get an elk or like not. And can I like beauty poker that with some wildflower seeds and bring something nourishing to this situation? I think 
part of that is also learning with our languaging. You know, something that Caroline Casey also says is she's like, ah, oh, this word trauma, it's gotten so much airwaves. Like, what instead of using trauma, you know, oh, we'll just throw that over, you know, put that in the in the um, cauldron, as she says, and instead uh, replace it with what about your dangerous, beautiful assignment? How does that feel in your body to play with? Oh, my trauma, my child, my childhood, dangerous, beautiful assignment. And I want to bring that to one thing personally and then to something um, collectively and then, you know, start wrapping up towards a, a um, close here. Because we said we we're going to go to 1.30 and we wanted to honor that even though we started a bit late. We'll go a bit over here. But, you know, Ian was pointing out and some people saw on Facebook after the last talk, I had this whole thing of watching myself speak and recognizing how much I used um and like and you know. And I vulnerably shared kind of with this idea of conquering it. I was like, I really want to heal this. Um, you know, somebody and I also admitted that this comes for me from a childhood stutter. And it's happened a few times. It happened earlier when I was trying to say Sophie Strand's name. And just now, I'm like, wow, what if the stutter is actually a form of trickster? Or can I hold space for it as such instead of something I need to conquer because a stutter is bad? And many people were actually pointing it out, Sophie Strand being one of them, of like, what if it isn't so bad, this idea of all these ums and likes? And again, like I there's a genuine desire to refine my language, but just holding space in this different way and how easily I fell into my own heroic ideation around conquering the way that I speak. And I think we can see that on a collective level with the pandemic and the human response to it. It's a war. We have to beat it and kill it. And just in general, like hearing the, hearing the news, so often people are like, 2020, 2021, what horrible years, what, yeah, they were hard times. Does that mean they were horrible or was that our dangerous, beautiful assignment? Mm -hmm. Was that, is the entire pandemic something of like a trickster coming in to slow us down and have us see that thing at our, at our, at our feet? You know, I know it's something that Ian and Bio um, Akumalafe spoke about in his podcast um, that Ian was asking me to reference and so just bringing that in of like it's really a way of how do we keep reframing things to play a more beautiful hand in this beauty poker that we're getting to have in this mm -hmm. really consequential moment of a uh, human life so yeah since we're we're heading towards like a little bit of a close i'll just let this maybe be like maybe the last riff or so um just in the last few days i've been uh it's this having this upcoming talk has inspired me to like pick trickster makes this world back up and i'd like I've been reading it for over a year and i'm like maybe a couple chapters away from the end at this point i was like oh yeah i guess i should be reading that a little bit more right now um and i loved the part that i got to because he's talking about um you know i was talking about greasing hinges earlier um he he brings up this etymological study of of the words for joints in um I mean, it's Latin essentially, but it's derived from, from the Greek. And it's uh, artus is A-R-T-U-S and articulus. Um, and these are the names, both of those, those words uh, applied to the cross, uh, the cross quarter holidays. So the solstices, the equinoxes and the midpoints between. So those were considered an articulus or an artus. Um, and 
thinking about hinge points as is where the trickster gets in and right in that word mm -hmm. um, and you're talking about articulation uh, in your your speech you're talking about these are your articulators your teeth and your jaw and your tongue um, you know that that's definitely trickster you know this is the the boundary line between what is in you and what is coming out of you you know has to pass um, and that is art that is you know that is uh, what what you know art uh, you know from the same etymological family comes the word order but it's a beautiful order and it needs it needs to be able to articulate um, it needs to be able to 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 move things and and uh, you know it's like I'm thinking about now just like the the way the way polarity kind of is is so um such a, a polarized reality we live in it's like you can't you know it's like something's either you know um i mean the whole uh, phenomena where things just go to being you know called nazi or fascist or something like that you know so like just swing to the end as, as quickly as possible and and like the place where things articulate is actually where things can change and immediately assigning things to these like extremes uh it just completely prevents a a fluidity in any kind of movement and art ought to live i would suggest maybe <laughs> if i'm gonna make a big statement in that middle zone where it's like what is this like what how you know this is getting me to see something from uh, not quite this perspective, not quite that perspective. How can I, you know, how do I engage this in a way that's authentic and uh, uh, authentically like attuned and, you know, not, not, not like saying there's a particular thing that is authentic, but just like being in the moment with something and not letting it condense into one possibility. One of the things that I've appreciated most about being in the school recently intending these stories is getting to like, sit with a story that much of the time I've heard before mm. and tell it and really sit with it and see, it's like, what is this, there's, you know, what is this saying? Not just coming at it. Like I know what it, what it, what it's telling me, what it's supposed mm. to tell me. And just like, you know, you were saying earlier with iron John, like coming back to that story and having a different meaning come out of it. Um, so yeah. And I think that that's like that, that, that way perception works um, is, is very much like, the 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 trickster in action in a way that like actually feeds culture allows new nourishment mm. to come out of things that perhaps were foundational perhaps you know perhaps they need to get thrown in the cauldron as carolyn casey is fond of saying um and and recomposted but that's like that's all part of the this process that we're kind of naming that yeah does not happen if one is averse to death is averse to end is averse to failure or risk uh yeah Mm, I love that. And maybe as ways just to close and transition it back to Ian here and Ben, that was so like, yes. Um, um, is what it's really coming to me is again, this quality that I think of what trickster brings. And I think the medicine of trickster and holding space for trickster is the reminder to hold space for everything. And I love what you said of like picking up stories and looking at them again. And I think of, so much of what we're aiming to do here in the school of mythopoetics is that creating of space, which is why this is a different type of thing happening, um, emergence happening is that this is not a traditional school. This is much more my um, mycelial. We are going to have guest teachers. 
And but really what we're trying to hold space for is the wild genius, that creative impulse that sometimes is trickster, sometimes is many things, but lives in each of us and lives in each lives in um, each of our souls and creating space for that as a school to really be examining these stories and our stories and looking at them from all these different angles and holding a different kind of space that maybe other schools have been, which is why it's because it's really about this mythopoetic dance, this fluency, this art creating that we get to do together. So something that we're seeing here with me and Ben, this is what I'm loving people's comments here. Um, I'm sorry we don't have more time to like dive in and get juicy, but that's what we are going to be doing here in the school. And there'll be plenty of space for the trickster to have its have its like way. And it certainly will. And it certainly has. So I just want to give a deep thanks, you know, to all of that space holding all the many forces um, that come up trickster being one of them in this time. And thank you also to the to the uh, heroes in the way that mythology has served us you know as a culture and again kind of like the ego or or maybe our um, adolescence it's not saying we're trying to kill we're saying thank you to and like here's the right you know house for like you and like you're welcome to come and join the ball team with the um, rest of us (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well what do we say how about (laughs) (laughs) i I personally I, I personally am enjoying the uh, number of sound effects that this uh, new platform allows, and I thought that might be an appropriate way to uh, to acknowledge what I, what I feel grateful for having witnessed there, which is maybe what I'd call a somewhat of an uh, archetypal jazz, uh, like this feeling of yeah being able to 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 weave and bounce and and emerge and see where we go. Uh, lots of questions asked, wondered about, and so yeah, I just want to offer first gratitude to both of you for joining us on stage, offering what you have. Beautiful. And uh, all of you uh, listening in and tuning in online and leaving your questions and your comments. It's so uh, gratifying to see a kind of echo, you know, going on. And um, if you're some questions on if this is being recorded, yes, it is. Uh, there's a link in the chat in uh, where to find it at the school mythopoetics.com slash events. And you can see recordings from all of our previous events there as well. I'm just going to uh, bid adieu for a moment to the two of you uh, as we shuffle on to the close once again. Thanks so much. Okay, and so now to all of you tuning in and those who'll tune in after, uh, I just want to, again, uh, offer an invitation to consider becoming a founding member of the School of Mythopoetics. We are opening officially on June 1st, and you can find all the details down below there at schoolofmythopoetics.com. Uh, you can lock in a, a founding member rate, which uh, yeah, really helps us as well. Just invest, you know, all the time and energy and a love that we wish uh, that we can into this endeavor uh, as we sort of step into this new incarnation, this new emergence. Uh, we also have a particular uh, offering for those who sign up in the next 48 hours. Uh, Daniel Robert, who is our sort of um, uh, in, in what do they call astrologer in residence, uh, mythopoetic astrologer in residence, he's offering us a very special archetypal, personal archetypal report for you, uh, if you join, uh, where he's going to reveal the bones of your astrological blueprint, uh, steeped in your mythopoetic identity, which is something that is a particular triangulation of an assessment uh, of the moment of your birth and the archetypal blueprint and the sun and the moon and a few other factors of that as well. 
And so if you join, you'll get an invitation to connect with Dan and he can offer that to you. Uh, once again, that's schoolmethodpodex.com. Uh, and I want to do another plug for the next event, actually, which is happening uh, about one week from today, uh, I believe on the Wednesday, which is that we're inviting uh, the incredible Martin Shaw, storyteller Martin Shaw, to join us here. Uh, those of you probably uh, know him as well. He's very well known in certain circles. And the talk is called The Fall in the Underworld. And that particular talk is, in many ways, a beautiful uh, continuance of the discussion that's been had here. Uh, where it's really you know diving into the mythology and the language of of what does it mean to be in the underworld and what does it mean to step out of it because uh, in the West as he said that we've somewhat perhaps uh, become lost in the underworld without any sense of uh, our bearings of how to navigate and therefore also how to emerge uh, so come and join Martin as he speaks old world stories and ideas into the malaise of our times this is a free event happening next week. Uh, get the details, schoolmethopoetics.com slash events. And uh, yeah, once again, thank you for tuning in. It's been a pleasure and onward we go.